you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it to Luke chapter number 16. We're going to camp out there for just a little bit this evening. We've been reading, if you're, if you're new tonight or new to, to kind of our midweek um, setting, one of the things that we've been doing, I, I guess over, I guess really the time that I've been here, so however long that's been now, uh, we've been reading through the Bible um, together, different, different uh, passages of Scripture every week. And then we just kind of come together during our midweek time and we discuss some different things maybe from uh, the readings from that week. So, you've been reading with us starting um, in the beginning of January for this year. We've been reading uh, a New Testament plan where we're going to read all of the New Testament for this year. So we're really going to be kind of focusing in on the New Testament during our midweek time. And so we started in the Gospel of Luke, which is where we still are. And uh, we have read, if you are, if you are on schedule... And when I say on schedule, what I mean is we've set it up to where you read five days a week or five times a week. So if you are on schedule with how I would do it, I read Monday, I read Tuesday, I read today, you would be through Luke 18 uh, as of today. And so we've been covering kind of some different chapters in Luke in our midweek time. So through Luke 18, there was one particular chapter that... Uh, really a lot of questions were asked about. A lot of different discussions, a lot of different people had some input on uh, this particular parable. And so tonight, that's why we're going to take just a little bit of time and look at some principles from a peculiar uh, parable, which is found in Luke uh, chapter number 16, right in the beginning of the chapter. So I want us to read a little bit of it, and then we'll have some discussion about uh, what Jesus was, was trying to communicate, at least to the best of my ability, I want to try to help you uh, kind of decipher some of what he was doing in teaching his disciples uh, with that parable. So uh, Luke uh, chapter number uh, 16, starting in verse number 1, we're just going to kind of walk through what's happening uh, in this moment. Here's what it says, Jesus also said uh, to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So we open up the parable and we find the two characters that we're going to wrestle with as we continue through what Jesus is sharing. There is the rich man. Now we're not exactly sure why he's rich, but he has enough money that he apparently needs someone to manage it for him. Now we might consider this guy um, in our day to be a money Manager, matter of fact, maybe his name was Edward Jones. We're not sure, but that was just a that was a joke. Sorry, we're not laughing. It could be that this manager is actually a hired servant. Some might even say he could possibly be a slave of the rich man. Whatever the case is, he has been given great authority and trusted by his master or his boss. Now we've encountered this type of relationship previously in the Gospel of Luke. It came in Luke seven with the centurion who came to Jesus looking for him to heal his servant. Now, why this servant needed to be healed from most people's perspective is because he was so valuable to the centurion because of all the authority that had been placed under his care. So if the centurion lost this guy, he would lose a lot of value to the leadership over his estate and his family and his wealth. And so he was asking Jesus to help him with someone who was that important in his family. Now we would think, why would a servant be that important? Well, likely because a lot of times those servants were put in in charge of everything that a rich person or a wealthy person or a well-to-do person uh, had uh, in you know under their care. So this is this is likely what's happening with the rich man and the manager. 
Now, there are likely two possibilities of what this guy was managing for the rich man. It could have been that it was agricultural. Uh, this guy, this manager, would have had a, a wide-ranging responsibility for running his employer's estate and dealing with his tenant farmers. The debts of oil and wheat, which we're going to read about a little bit later in this parable, represent agreed rents for land leased out by the rich man. So a lot of people have speculated his wealth was in agriculture. It could have been, though, that it was really just financial investments instead of agriculture in general. In other words, the rich man could have loaned out large sums of money at interest. However, the loans have been expressed in the parable in commodity terms because Jews prohibited lending money at interest. And we won't go into what that looks like in the Old Testament, but if you were to flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, you can soak up all that wonderful wisdom as much as you would like to. But for the Jews, it was against their laws to, uh, uh, to hold interest over anybody or to loan something with interest in mind. And so either he's in agriculture, and so that's what that looks like from the commodities that we read about, or he's covering up the interest that he's taking from other people with the commodities that are mentioned in agriculture. Either way, this guy's got a lot of stuff. Now, for this man, someone has reported to him that his manager wasn't doing a very good job. We don't know who the they is that has reported or gossiped or spread whatever it is about this guy. And what we discover in a little bit is that it actually, though I guess gossip-like, it really was true. And so they're not spreading any lies. They're just giving information to the rich man over what's happening. Now, we're not sure what the manager's doing with the possessions of the rich man, but obviously he wasn't doing what the rich man desired for him to do. Also, the fact that people would be coming to the rich man to tell or to tattle on his manager probably is a reflection that he doesn't have a real good standing with most of the people in the area. So he's not exactly probably a, a very well-liked uh, fellow. Now, more than simply managing some possessions, Jesus says this man specifically was wasting the rich man's possessions. Now, the word for wasting is an interesting word. It's the same word used to describe the prodigal son in which we read about just before this parable. As a matter of fact, here's what it says about the prodigal son in Luke 15, 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The same word for wasted in the description of the manager to the rich man is the same word as squandered when it's talking about the wealth that the father had given to his son. The same way he did that with his inheritance is the same way that this guy is wasting the, the resources and the wealth of the rich man. So there's the characters. This is building the scene for this particular, peculiar, interesting parable. So let's move on. Verse 2. And he called him rich man that is, called to his servant and uh, to his manager and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So obviously the rich man, like most of us, when he hears the rumors and apparently believes them, he is about to fire the manager. The rich man also wants a full account of what the man has been managing. It seems as though he might be getting ready or getting uh, everything he needs together to seek restitution in court or by some other means. I don't know what those other means might be, but probably not very fun. And so he's about to, he's about to get this guy who has been uh, unfaithful or, or has been wasting what he has entrusted him 
with. So verse 3, and the manager said to himself, so all this is happening, right? Rich man finds out his manager's wasting everything, comes to the manager, manager realizes, uh-oh, this is not good, right? And so he says to himself, what shall I do? Right? He's in trouble. He realizes this. We realize this. He says, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So obviously he's letting us in on a few things that are probably true of his character. He's a proud man, although he doesn't have a whole lot to be proud about. And he's a lazy man. Probably part of that is from the management issues that he's having in the first place. But he does not want to do any manual labor that might require more than what he wants to give. And so he's in trouble. So here's what happens, right? This is where the parable begins to get a little interesting. Verse 4, it says, I have decided what to do. So he's coming up with a plan. It says, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, this is an intriguing plan, right? Like, if you're just reading this parable and you're thinking about the scheming of this manager. Now, some of you in this room, you might be a boss or you might own some of your own property. You might have people who help you manage things or at least people that you entrust responsibility to. If they are cheating you, you are very unhappy about what's happening, right? You obviously no longer want them working for you. But if you are a dishonest boss that has been using or taking advantage of everybody that you can for your own means, then the fact that this guy has went behind you with a clever plan like this one has to make you think about what's happening for just a moment, right? Let's, let's think about the plan. If he would have to repay whatever the, the remaining balances were on the bills, then reducing them would save him what he had to pay back, right? It's pretty basic. If I'm going to owe debts, let me get them as low as I can get them so I don't owe as much. Also, by reducing their debts, he was gaining favor with people who may or may not have liked him before. Now, here's the scenario. The first debtor, he reduced the amount by 50%. The next debtor, he reduced the amount by 20%. Now, we don't know exactly why these percentages were different. Maybe a lot of people speculate that it's because this guy was smart enough or knew enough about what he was managing and the people under his uh, uh, authority, he knew what they could pay back in hard cash, right? And so he's going to these guys. By the way, guys who owe a whole lot of things. He's going to them and he's saying, listen, if you will act quickly, in other words, instead of waiting, if you won't let any more interest pile up, I'll knock down this much of a percentage so that you can pay off what you owe. Now, this is brilliant because if they pay off their bills, then he won't owe anything either. And so he's scheming up this plan that's helping them, but at the same time, it's really selfish gain by helping himself. Now, a side note to this is that he made them write it in their own handwriting. Now, what's interesting about that is that this would now also make the debtors a part of the scheme. The manager could accuse them of changing it instead of himself. And so there's a lot of 
interesting wisdom to this. Also, I think it's fascinating that the amounts of the debtors would suggest that they are, if not close to or equal to, or, or if not equal to, very close to, as wealthy or as rich as the man that this guy manages the money for. In, in other words, when, when we read a hundred measures of oil, a lot of people speculate that that's equivalent to three years worth of wages. The other one, a hundred measures of wheat was the equivalent to over seven years worth of wages. Now, whether those numbers are exactly true or not, I don't really know. I didn't do a whole lot of investigating on what a hundred measures of oil or a hundred measures of wheat were in that time connected to how much it cost to live or how much they were paid. I don't know. But here's what we do know. They're big enough sums of money that this guy's making friends with other guys who are equally as big of a deal, equally as rich as the guy that apparently is letting him go. And so if you, if you don't understand the picture, let me just give it to you simply. This is a very clever plan. This guy has schemed very, very well. Now watch verse 8. The master does, as we have thought about with the wisdom of his plan, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. This is always a little fascinating to me. Because like I said, if you're the boss, I don't think you're happy about what happened. So obviously the master is not like, wow, man, that was so clever. You know what? Come on back here, you rascal. Let's start this all over again, right? Like not that kind of uh, commending what's happened. He's commending the shrewdness, not necessarily the action. And Jesus makes a note in verse 8. That's, that's interesting. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now even the master, the one who's losing, had to respect the shrewdness or the wisdom of the dishonest manager. Now when we think of the word shrewd, or at least I think of the word shrewd, I typically think of something bad. But the word actually means understanding resulting from insight or wisdom. That's what this guy was displaying. He had wisdom and knowledge. He knew what was happening and what was about to happen to him. And rather than waiting, he took advantage the best he could of the dire situation he was in and made it the best he could for himself. Now, I know this sounds weird. The more and more I talk about it, it's like, this can't be right. Right? Like this kind of selfishness, this kind of, of personal gain, this kind of attacking someone else so that my life could be better. Surely this can't be something that's good. Well, I don't know exactly what was so commendable about the plan, but here's what I do know. The master, he ends up tipping his hat, right, to the manager. He ends up kind of giving him the old touche, you know. Can't do anything about it. Not real happy. <laughs> that was a pretty good move. Right there, you sly fella, right? Now what's interesting about him kind of tipping his hat or his commending him is that it could have been for a couple of different reasons. It could have been that the master had no idea what the debts were for each of the debtors. In other words, his manager was in so much control over all the estate that the manager really could have done whatever he wanted to because the master had no idea what the debts actually were. So therefore... If he gets all those people who are in debt to change their bills to whatever they want, especially what they could pay, the master would have no way of knowing otherwise. Therefore, he would owe nothing back to his master, and they would at least just part ways without, being owing, without him owing anything to him. 
Or it could have been that the master did know what the debts were. But even though he kept a record, even though he knew everything that everybody else owed him, by the time all of this unfolded, he would not let his reputation be muddy. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, here's what happened. He would either have to go and tell everybody that he let this manager take over everything he had and he got cheated by this scoundrel and then everybody would laugh at him. Or he would have to go back on those bills and say, you know what, I'm not the generous guy you thought I was. I didn't make these right. I want the money that you owe me. And so either way, whether he actually knew what they were or he didn't know what they were, for whatever the case was, he commends the manager for such shrewdness. Now the other side of this coin that I think is interesting is that the master was giving out loans and charging interest, which by the way we already noted was against Jewish law. There's no way he could use that to put that against anybody in court. There's no way he could tell on himself in order to hold the manager responsible for his unrighteousness when the entire scheme was built on unrighteousness. So now, not only is he getting the manager in trouble, he's getting himself in trouble at the same time. See where this trickery is so beautiful? The manager, in all of his wisdom and shrewdness, in all of his uh, business savvy according to worldly standards, he got it, right? This is a checkmate kind of moment. There is nothing that the master can do except go, all right, this one's yours, all right? This one's it. Can't do anything about it. You got me. I should have did something different. I tip my hat. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. She said, Andy, you talked about a whole lot, and we haven't even gotten to the sheet on the back of the midweek. I know. I want to pause here because here's, here's what you're probably thinking, or at least... I hope you were thinking this when you read this. What in the world is Jesus trying to teach us from this parable? Is he telling us to be dishonest? Is he praising someone for doing wrong things? Why would Jesus use someone's wrong to teach us something right? Now, if you didn't think those things, well, then I feel a little embarrassed because that's what I thought the entire time I read this parable. Really didn't even just this past time. Every time I read this parable, I'm like, Jesus, why would you praise this guy? Why are you using this as an example? Why is this the standard when I know you don't want me to be dishonest? I know you don't want me to take advantage of people. I know you don't want me to live according to these types of standards. You tell me that everywhere else. What are you trying to say? It made me think of an old saying that I've always loved that stuck with me through the years. Here's the saying. Eat the fish and leave the bones. <clears throat> Eat the fish and leave the bones. As a matter of fact, it always makes me think of a good catfish house in Ellisville, Mississippi called Charlie's Catfish. I don't know how many of you have ever been there. But one of the things I hate about Charlie's Catfish is that they don't do fillets. you got to eat the fish with the bones in it. Listen, I don't know about you, friends. I'm not a fan of picking around the bones. I want somebody to beautifully fillet up my fish in perfect batter that is to the, the, the liking that I desire, and I want to eat it and enjoy however much of it I want, but I don't want bones. This is the type of parable that's got some bones in it. This is the type of parable where we got to dig a little bit deeper and say, Jesus, what are you trying to show us? What are you trying to teach us? Now, let me, let me help you wrap your mind around it for a second. 
Have you ever admired certain characteristics from someone even though you didn't agree with them? Has that ever happened to you? You don't have to admit it necessarily if you feel like that's going against every conviction or fiber in your body, right? Like that one Democratic guy. Man, I hated to side with him, but I like what he did there, you know, right? Like whatever the case may be, somebody that you wouldn't want to live like, you know, you're not trying to model your life after him. But in that particular instance or whatever that characteristic was, you just happen to admire whatever it was, right? I mean, this could be a, a world leader from history that wasn't the best person, but you admired um, their, their leadership. Or an artist who has different values from you, but you admire uh, some of their, their music. Or this could be an athlete that makes poor choices in life, but you admire their skill. Or an actor that has a, a different perspective on the meaning of life, but you admire their abilities. I mean, this list could go on and on, depending on all the different categories you want to put in there. I'll give you a good example for me. I listen to all kinds of preachers, all right? When you are a preacher, typically you are a fan of preaching and other preachers. And so I listen to all of them. I listen to preachers that you would all probably say, Danny, I can't believe you listen to that guy. I can't believe you let that garbage into your ears. I can't believe, I don't know what it is. Maybe you heard one thing, or maybe you saw a news article heading, or maybe you, maybe they really are a bad guy. All right, that's true. I'll be honest with you. I listen to a few that I'm not going to model my life after, all right? But I like some of the things that they do and some of the things that they say. Not everybody I listen to, do I like their philosophy of ministry, or do I want to, uh, you know, I, I agree with their theology, or I want to set up and strategize church like that. I, not always, right? But just because I listen to a sermon by somebody who's a good communicator doesn't mean I have to agree with everything in their life. Are you with me? I think this is what Jesus is doing. In other words, just because the water might be dirty doesn't mean I throw out the baby, right? I think that may go a little different way normally. What I've learned over the years is that you have to eat the fish and leave the bones. This is what's happened. Though the dishonest manager used the resources entrusted to him wrongly, what might happen if we use the resources given to us rightly? Now listen, I want to show you what I mean, or, or really what Jesus means, from this particular parable. Jump back to verse 8, right? We're not done, sorry. Back get back to it. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. You say, Danny, I don't get what Jesus is saying. Is he telling us to be dishonest and abuse the trust of others for our gain? Of course he's not saying that, right? That is never how Jesus would want us to react. Don't mistake the master. Don't mistake the master commending the manager with Jesus commending the manager. Jesus calls this guy, by the way, dishonest. Jesus isn't praising the manager for what he did. Rather, here's what Jesus is doing. He's making a connection between the master and the manager and the workings of the world around us. You say, Danny, what do you mean? The master and the manager were cut from the same mold. They were chips off the same block. Both of them were shrewd in their dealings, trying to take advantage of others for their own good. Also, focus on this for a moment. According to the world's rules, or the world's standard, or the world's way of operating, 
They were both doing something worthy of praise because they were crafty enough to turn a profit off of someone else's misfortune. Also, the master doesn't commend him for what he did, but for the way in which he did it. It wasn't that he took advantage of him. It was that he was wise enough, maybe even to learn from the rich man himself. Take advantage when you can take advantage, right? What's the uh, get get it while the getting is good? Or, or I feel like that's what's happening, right? He can't be mad at him. He's probably the one who taught him how to act this way, right? Now, the parable, in my opinion, has nothing to do with business practices. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Jesus is not giving us a model of how we need to run our business, all right? This is not the case. Rather, it seems to be that Jesus is teaching us to decide for ourselves which side we're on in this life. You say, what do you mean? Will we be on the side of the world? This is why Jesus uses the phrase, sons of this world. Or, will we be on God's side? Which is why he uses the phrase, the sons of light. Those who belong to the world are willing to do whatever it takes to gain according to the rules of this world. But are the people of God willing to do whatever it takes to gain according to the kingdom of God? Let me show you the first principle that I noticed when I was going through this interesting parable. If believers lived as passionately for Jesus as the lost lived for themselves, the world would be turned upside down. Now let that sink in for a moment. Why is the rich man commending the manager? He's commending him because according to the way they both think life should be, he did awesome. According to the world standard, he got everything he could for himself. And Jesus is saying the reason why this is commended from the rich man is because the people of this world, they are very, very good at using their unrighteousness to gain more unrighteousness. But he flips it when he compares the sons of the world to the sons of light. Here's what he's saying. What if God's people were as passionate about reaching the world with the gospel as lost people are about making their own lives better. you imagine the impact that that would have on the world around us? I put a quote in your notes. It was an interesting read from Chuck Swindoll this week. If we were as eager and ingenious to attain wisdom and goodness as the unsaved are to attain money and comfort, our lives would show dramatic change. If we were as relentless in our pursuit of forgiveness and grace as the unsaved are in the pursuit of winning, our relationships would also show dramatic change. Herschel Hobbes wrote this, The children of this world are stewards of unrighteousness. The children of light are stewards of righteousness. And the former use their stewardship unto their own more shrewdly than do the latter. Lost people have gotten very good at being lost. You know what Christians haven't quite got so good at yet? Being Christians. You imagine what happens when we do? That, my friends, would be a commendable moment as God looks down on His people and says, Well done, my good and faithful servants. If we pursued the kingdom of God with the same vigor and zeal that the children of this world pursue profits and pleasure, we would live in an entirely different world. 
It could be said that it is to the shame of the church that Coca-Cola is more widely distributed than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world never stops pushing their agenda, and the harder people push back, the harder they try. We as believers don't even push. When was the last time you talked to someone about your faith? When was the last time you offered to pray for someone that was hurting? When was the last time you offered to buy someone's meal? When was the last time you offered to help someone in need? This is what Jesus is saying here. Is, is the world more shrewd in their business dealings than Christians are in spreading the message of Jesus? Pretty powerful principle from a peculiar parable. <clears throat> Look at verse 9. There's a couple more principles, as you can tell. We're going to get to them. Verse 9, and I tell you, Jesus is still talking. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's an interesting verse, is it not? Like, I don't know how many of you read this and you thought, Wow, Jesus wants me to use unrighteousness for my own gain? Not even just gain, like, personally here. He's wanting me to, like, manipulate heaven with my unrighteous wealth. I don't know if you read that and you thought, this is one of the weirdest things I've ever heard. I thought that same thing. And then I dug a little bit, right? I, I, I ate some of the fish and I left some of the bones. And here's what I discovered. The phrase unrighteous wealth isn't something that means bad. It's weird because it uses the word unrighteous. You know what the word really is? It's worldly. It's temporal. It's the things that are now. Now, can those things be bad? Yeah, right? But can those things be good? Of course they can, right? They're just kind of neutral. It depends on what you do with them. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, we all like having a vehicle to drive, agree? It's a little bit more difficult to get to where we're trying to get if we don't have a vehicle. By the way perfectly great idea in our culture, to own a vehicle. It's really tough in South Tilla, Tupelo area to get around without your own vehicle. Everything's a little spread out. But if you say, Danny, I live for my vehicle. That's everything to me. I just, I, I gotta have this one. I'll do whatever it takes. This means everything to me. Then guess what? That vehicle is bad and you need to think about your priorities, right? Something in your mind needs to shift just a little bit. Think about the phrase unrighteous wealth with a phrase that's probably better understood as worldly possessions or worldly wealth. Now you say, Danny, why would this be significant? Well, this is principle number two. Here's what Jesus is saying. Worldly resources should be used to benefit others for eternity. This is what Jesus is communicating to us now. Are we using our earthly wealth for an eternal impact? Matter of fact, Luke says it before this moment back in chapter 12. Here's what Jesus said. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, I want you to key in on the shrewdness of this particular manager. This manager was thinking about investments for the future. That's what a shrewd manager thinks about. Shrewd disciples should be the same way. 
They should also be thinking about making investments for the future. Now, I'm not talking about the future on this earth. I'm not talking about your 401k, although handle what you got to handle, all right? I'm not talking about your, your monetary investments of possessions and wealth that you're accumulating here that you can pass on to your children and your children's children and wherever else. Nothing wrong with that. Be smart and wise and handle what God's given you in the way you see fit. But listen to me, friends. One day, one day, it will fail. This is why he says, so that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, you say, Danny, what do you mean? I don't care how nice your possessions are. You're not bringing them with you, right? There's that old saying, you never see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. Heard that one before? I don't care how nice it is. It's not going with you. But guess what? People will, right? Guess what? One day, you will enter the gates of heaven. You will not see a fancy house. You will not see a fancy car. Actually, you will see a pretty fancy house, I guess. Really nice gate. Okay, okay, take that back. You'll see a lot of fancy things, okay? But they won't be what you had here, and they won't be because of your possessions here. You know what will be there? There will be people. This is what Jesus said. There will be people who receive you into the eternal dwellings. Can I ask you something, friends? If your focus on this earth is all about your own material wealth and worldly possessions and your own money and that value, if that's all you care about, then people are probably pretty low on the list. And when you get to heaven, there ain't going to be no welcome crew for you. There ain't going to be no saints cheering you on. There ain't going to be nobody there to receive you when you get there. Why? Because the only thing you're taking from here there is the investments you make for eternity. And can I tell you something? That's the people that you love on in the name of Jesus. Isn't it interesting to think about Jesus saying, your worldly resources should be used for the benefit of others. Herschel Hobbes, I think I put this in your notes as well, it's just an interesting <clears throat> quote. As the shrewd steward used the worldly wealth in an unrighteous manner in order to ensure a welcome into the houses of those who benefited from his evil deed, so the followers of Christ should use worldly wealth to ensure that they will be welcomed into heaven. That doesn't get you there, but it's beautiful to know that when the end comes, you didn't waste your life or the possessions that God put under your responsibility and authority, but instead you used them for him. Here's the Herschel Hobbes note you have, I think. The entire point, what Jesus is talking about here, hinges on the wise use that an unrighteous man made of his unrighteousness. He looked beyond the present to the dividends of the future. Hey friends, how often do we do that? Do we look to eternity as we think about the impact that we're having on this side of it? Let's move on. Verse 10 goes on. Jesus said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches, eternal wealth? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? This is a pretty basic principle, right? If we're not faithful in the small things, we'll never be faithful in the large things. A person proves his ability to handle great responsibilities by being faithful and successful in handling the lesser ones. If we're not even faithful with the worldly wealth that God gives us today, why would we think he would entrust us with the true riches of spiritual wealth? And here's principle number three. 
Be responsible in the little things. Say, dang, that's pretty basic. I agree, right? That's actually how simple it really is. Be responsible in the little things so that God will entrust you with the large ones. Jesus wants to use us to change the world, but He can't entrust us with much if we're unwilling to be faithful with little. How will we use the insignificant, simple, worldly, material things? How we use them could be an indicator of how we manage spiritual things. If you allowed someone to borrow something and they brought it back in a worse condition, are you typically going to let them borrow something the next time? If that was me, I really apologize. Please let me borrow it the next time. I'm sorry. Of course we're not going to do it. Somebody borrows your car and they wreck it. Guess what you're not doing the next time they need a car? I don't know why I'm talking about cars so much, by the way. Apparently I'm subconsciously there's something going on there. You're not letting somebody borrow your shovel when they broke it, when they brought it back, right? It's just how it works. God's looking for the same type of faithfulness in the less as much in the much. If we're not faithful in the little, why would He entrust us anymore? Luke made a comment about this earlier in chapter 6 when he said, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now listen, I still can't get away from the statement that the rich man makes to the manager when he finds out that he's been wasting his resources. This is back in verse 2. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now think about that. This parable is not comparing God to the rich man, and it's not comparing us to the manager. God's not the horrible rich man. We're not the dishonest manager. That's not the connection. However, you can't see past the connection that God does own everything, and He has made us a manager to what He's placed in our care. The Bible is clear that each of us will be held responsible for what we've done with what God has given us. If He asked you to give an account, what would your response be? If He listed out all that He's entrusted to you and said, I want you to tell me how you've managed it, what would that look like in your conversation with God? I don't know about you, but I'm going to be honest. really don't have much of a choice. If I was the manager and God said, here's what's been happening, can you tell me why? I'm in the same boat. I have to look at Him and go, you're right. I haven't done what you wanted. I haven't, haven't managed it very well. I've missed a lot. Let some slip through the cracks, right? 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul wrote, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I'm not trying to scare you or freak you out. But I think it's important that we do remember that we will be held accountable for what we do on this side of eternity. We will be held accountable, the Bible says, for every word that we say. Every deed. Everything that we've received, everything that we've given, everything that we've passed up. He said, hey, does that mean i got to try to be perfect? No, I'm not trying to scare you into some kind of legal dictatorship where you think God's just going to stomp you like an ant. Like, no. I mean, He could, but no, that's not what I'm saying. Matter of fact, if He wanted to do that, He'd done it a long time ago. Amen? But what I am trying to get you to see is this. There is an eternity. One day we're all going to be there. And one day it's not going to be like down here, where even though God sees us all the time, we think He doesn't. We think, oh man, God's got a whole lot of people he's got to manage. He ain't looking at Danny Boudreaux, right? Well, guess what? 
One day you're going to stand face to face with him. It ain't going to be like that no more. You know what it's going to be? It's going to be a sad moment when we look at God. He shows us what all he entrusted us with. And we have to look him in the face and say, yeah, I, I, I missed a few things. I don't know about you, friends. I don't, I don't want to have to do that any more than I have to do that. I think we can make a little shift now. Jesus would say be responsible in the little things. Let me show you this. This is the last principle. I'm getting there. Number four. This comes from verse number 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, right? The choice is pretty clear. Jesus puts it before us. Will we serve God or will we serve money, wealth, material possessions, however you want to look at it. Matter of fact, he would say it in Matthew like this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Our loyalty should be to God over anything else. No matter how great your wealth or possessions may seem right now, they mean nothing compared to an eternity with God. So you say, Danny, what, what's... let me wrap all this up for you. Rich man doesn't represent God. Dishonest manager doesn't represent us, right? But there's still something to be said of the comparison of a rich man giving responsibility to a manager and God giving responsibility to us. He's made us stewards to manage his resources. Are we wasting them? Now listen, whether that means a great deal of wealth or simply just the life you've been given, are you using what you have for God? Are you using worldly wealth, which was given to you, by the way, by him in the first place, to benefit the kingdom for all eternity, or are you using it to benefit yourself for today? There's a great shift that I think needs to take place in our lives that Jesus is trying to teach us. Here's the shift. We need to shift our focus from ownership to management. I don't know about you, but when I focus on that, it really does redirect how I look at every day. When I look at what I should have and what I'm entitled to and what I work hard for and what is mine, right? I keep bringing that up. It seems like we just talked about it last week. I think about what is mine and what's owed to me and what I deserve and how I get to use it and what, how it's there for me, right? Here's what i got to remind myself. I was never given ownership of any of them. It all belongs to God, and He's just made me a manager of His resources. So when He comes to ask about them, what will I be able to say to him? 